is Ronaldo. Oh, my goodness. You don't save those. Out of this world. Messi. 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 Landon Donovan, there are things on here for the USA. Can they do it here? Cross, and Dempsey's denied again, and Donovan has scored! Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA! Certainly through! Oh, it's incredible! You could not write a script like this! For the fourth time, the United States of America are crowned champions of the world. From the international stage to right here at home, this is FUVFC, talking all things soccer on WFUV Sports. It is Wednesday, March 9th, 2022. Finished up literally a half hour ago, the second leg of two Champions League knockout stages. Man City played Sporting to a draw to advance 5-0 on aggregate. But the one that was probably going to be regarded as maybe the best Champions League game thus far in the tournament of 21-22 was that Madrid versus PSG clash. Before we break down that thriller, let's talk to our fellow fellow host, Nick Guzman, here in studio with me. Michael Hernandez, still across the pond. He's on the Zoom. Nick, how are you, my man? I'm doing pretty good, man. Good to be back in the studio that was some game we just saw, you know, PSG collapse a little bit. We're going to get into it later. I've got a lot to say about that one, but excited to talk to Michael. It's the first time I've talked to him since he's been in London. How are you doing, man? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm doing great. Uh, you know, I, I was able to watch the game uh, at a local pub, and the atmosphere was was amazing. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, I, I'm just happy to be on uh, for another week. Yeah, and, you know, I think Michael were jealous of you because I just watched it in my bedroom because my roommates aren't soccer fans. Same. I imagine Nick's the same. But that I saw videos of friends of mine that are abroad, not from Fordham, but from other schools in Madrid, and they were at you know Real clubs or Real bars, and like the scenes when Benzema scored his second, and then when he they took the lead like immediately following that kickoff. Just I mean, you dream of being anywhere but the United States to watch that, truth be told. But let's break down that game, gents, because PSG came into the second leg leading 1-0. You know, we remember that Mbappe late winner, and it was Mbappe who got the scoring going in this one. He had one that was ruled off sides, finally gets his goal to make it one nothing PSG. You know, no away goals, so it counts the same. And going into halftime, PSG had Madrid on the ropes. And it was like a boxer or UFC fighter or whatever combat sport you want to throw in there waiting for the round to end just because they are getting dummied. And PSG, really shame on them for not burying Madrid when they were, you know, down and out because we saw that second half come. And, you know, again, Mbappe offsides, scores another one, dribbles around Courtois, not to be as the flag goes up. And then in the span of literally... Excuse me. In the span of literally sub twenty minutes, Karim Benzema reminds everyone that you know Mbappe 
you know, he's linked to that move. They've always wondered, is Benzema the future of Real Madrid? Can he be a consistent striker, a consistent number nine? He bags a hat trick, second half hat trick, to put Madrid up 3-1 in the match, 3-2 on aggregate, and that's the way the match finished. So much happening in this game. Nick, I'm going to go to you first for a knee-jerk reaction to I don't want to say an upset, but with the star-studded lineup that PSG have, and to go up 2-0 in this tie, to completely collapse in the second half, it's just it's just bad. I've split my notes into two sections. There's PSG slander and the tactics. So we're going to start the PSG slander. This is the softest team I've ever seen. I'm going to repeat that. This is the softest team I have ever seen. The collapse, it was so predictable as soon as that first goal went in. As soon as something you know doesn't go PSG's way, they completely fall apart. They start fouling. There's no leadership from anyone. It's kind of like a bunch of children. Two center backs, Kimpembe, he's got the temperament of like a spoiled five-year-old. And Marquinhos, as a captain, the two of them paired together, it just was not great. Kimpembe, I don't think is a good center back. I've thought that for years. But the key thing for PSG for me, you know, the announcer that I was watching on CBS mentioned it. You know, he really, Pochettino really needed to sub off one of Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe in the second half to shore up the midfield. He needed to do that. But when your team caters to superstars like that, it's it's not a move you're going to make. When you have someone like Idrissa Gay on the bench and they subbed him on eventually for Paredes, but that wasn't the move that needed to, they needed to make. Honestly, for talking pure tactics-wise, you need to sub off Messi and bring on Idrissa Gay and shore up the midfield. That's never going to happen, but that's why this PSG team is not going to win because they're catering to superstars over winning. You can't win in 2022 with three you know, passive attackers, I'd call them. You really can't. You know, We all love Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe, but the team is broken, for lack of a better word. People, people harp on Messi for not being a leader. and You know, he's not, but that's fine. I feel like if you're a teammate of his, you need to realize that by now and someone else needs to step up. Marquinhos is wearing the captain's armband. There's other veterans in there, Verratti. That capitulation should not happen. Um, but for Real Madrid, I thought that really the key difference was that, you know, Ancelotti doesn't have to cater to any superstars. You know, he noticed that Real Madrid were, looked slow in the midfield, brought on Camavinga, took off Cruz, they got rejuvenated, and that really changed the game. And that sub made such a difference. PSG kept on their three stars, came back to bite them. You know, in my opinion, there's really no shame in bunkering down. PSG didn't have to necessarily bunker down, but play a little more defensively, sub off one of the attackers, sure up the midfield, and that's all you need to do. They couldn't do that. They completely collapsed, and, you know, we've seen it for, for the PSG team for years, before Messi, before Neymar, the days of Ibrahimovic and Lucas Mora, they collapsed again and again. And you just wonder what the reason for that is. Maybe it's because they don't face any competition in League One. Who knows, but... You know, this was just so on brand for PSG, and you could see it coming as soon as that first goal hit the back of the net. Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree with that. I mean, the moment that Benzema scored that first goal, like, you know, we all knew, you know, something's going to happen because, you know, because now Madrid are back in the game and, you know, PSG have, a, have had a history, you know, uh, you think of the Barcelona uh, comeback back in 2015. You know, you have uh, Manchester United beating them back in 2018 under Ali. Like, you know, this has happened again and again and again. And I'm pretty sure uh, that that I mentioned this in a previous podcast when they went against City in the 
in the group stages. You know, like those front three players, you know, they, you know, it's it's kind of like they're, they're in their own team essentially because, you know, you have those three superstars in there, you know, somewhere else while, you know, the rest of the team is trying to, you know, hold back this Madrid um, attack. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, we're talking about how PSG, you know, dropped the ball. But we also have to talk about, you know, Madrid, you know, the fact that they kept on pressing, especially that second goal, like that, that pass from Modric is inch perfect. Like, you know, only someone of that quality could spot and make that. And also for Benzema for timing his run, because that is as close to... Uh, actually, I can think of maybe closer ones, but that was as close to an onside as you're going to get, and then a beautiful finish, and then the third one, I actually didn't see it live because I was uh, I was checking my phone uh, to see you know uh, what else was happening, and then all of a sudden it's three two. So I mean, it's just a complete, you know, a complete just shambolic uh, you know result with PSG because now they're knocked out. And especially after uh, Mbappe scored that that goal in the first half, you know, you, you thought then and there it's like, oh, you know, they they, they now have a two nil lead on aggregate. You know, they they've been the the better team up until that point, and, and you think, oh, you know what, you know, they should make it now. They might have a bit of a scare, but they should make it. And within the span of less than twenty minutes, Benzema showed why he's one of the best number nines in the world. So. That's I, I, I just think that for someone with PSG with that quality that you have, this should not happen. I End think story. I think for me and you know, Nick, you had the section of your notes entirely little PSG slander, and I think so much of what you said was true. And you know, I was listening to the same telecast as you were on CBS Sports, and as soon as Benzema gets that first one, which is, you know, Yes, that is Donnarumma's problem because when in doubt, you can just kick it into the fifth row and they're not going to score. But, you know, you don't have Marquinhos dropping back. You know, you don't have Kimpembe. You don't have Hakimi dropping back into positions to receive a pass. He panics, turns it over to Va- uh, Vinicius, and Vinicius plays in Benzema 1-0, and then it's on. And then I was really impressed with PSG because... Truth be told, I don't like this PSG side. I don't think there's, you know, any likable players. Verratti is a pest. Neymar, in my opinion, is the most overrated soccer player of this generation. A guy that has stepped away from stepped away from a phenomenal Barcelona side to come to PSG to assert, you know, that he's a superstar and he can do it on himself. And what has he won? A couple league ones in a a league that doesn't really compete, with the exception of last year when Leo won. I was shocked by, you know, they were so composed in that first half. And then after conceding the first goal, there was a, like a seven-minute spell of possession where PSG settled the entire game down and, you know, we're just pinging it around. And then Mbappe makes one errant pass and all of a sudden Real are on the race. And then two, two minutes later after maintaining possession, Modric plays that inch-perfect ball, as Michael, you pointed to. Benzema literally by like an eyelash onside, but he's onside nonetheless. When he gets the ball in anywhere around the 18, you think he's destined to score. And then immediately following the kickoff, PSG play one pass back, play pass forward, immediate interception. And then I don't know what the absolute heck Marquinhos is doing, trying to clear the ball, you know, on the floor through his 18. But Benzema being the striker that he is, that he's been for so long, a true poacher, sees it, incredible, you know, snapshot, half volley. Donnarumma's, you know, got no shot because it's just that quick, and all of a sudden it's 3-2. And, you know, 
the question was, could PSG respond? And that's what I was looking for because, you know, you talked about it, Nick. Who is the leader on that team that's going to step up and, you know, will that team that is so loaded with talent, who's going to will them to go and get an equalizer after you've seen a 2 nothing aggregate lead completely dissipate in front of you? Who's going to be the guy that, you know, says, let's go out and let's go, you know, level this and let's find extra time? you never going to get that from Messi, Barcelona, or at PSG. And the front three, you know, why they stayed on for so long, I don't know. And then, you know, if Marquinhos is your center back and he's your captain, he needs to step up into that role. I don't think that's a role that suits him. You know, Thiago Silva would do that, but since he's moved on to greener pastures or browner pastures or whatever you want to call the state of Chelsea, which we'll get to later, you just kind of were hoping that, you know, PSG would find something within them. It's a lot of isolation, you know, between the midfield and the front three. They like the front three kind of like just to, you know, clip it around, let Mbappe run in space, Messi and Neymar work together on the ball, but there's not a lot of continuity between playing in the midfield and the front three, which ultimately came back to bite them in the butt because, you know, you need to score two more than two goals, I think anyone would say, to beat a Real Madrid side that is just so loaded with the veteran talent that they have. And PSG, you know, once again, didn't put them to bed when they could have. And, you know, when you let a team that has the class and has the talent, but more importantly has the leadership experience that Real Madrid does, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, Karim Benzema, that's a guy who's just going to take the game by the scruff of the neck, and he's going to will his team to victory. You know, Real Madrid, they've really tried to replace him a lot. You know, think Luka Jovic, players like that they brought in, thinking, you know, Benzema's aging out of it, but he just keeps proving again and again he's elite. You know, for, for PSG, they just don't, they don't have that. Even when they had their spells of possession, it's very predictable, you know, what they're going to, what their plan is offensively. They're trying to do combinations with the front three, flick it behind for Mbappe, like you said, Keenan. And, you know, it works sometimes because Mbappe's an incredible player. But it's not consistent, and it's not going to beat the big boys in Europe. And when you talk about somebody like Messi, who, you know, we all know, one of the greatest players of all time, whether he's the best or not, it's up for debate. Who cares? That's not what this is about. But I think he's definitely lost a step this year that you can see visibly. You know, the, the spell that, that, that uh, stuck out to me was when he tried to flick the ball around Luka Modric. And Modric, you know, had him stride for stride and tackled out of bounds. You think back three, four years ago, five years ago, you know, there's no way Luka Modric is, is catching Messi in that sort of scenario. You know, he's still probably the best playmaker in the world. He's an incredible passer, but he can't blow by people like he used to. You know, he's 34. That's the kind of thing that PSG have to start to take into consideration when you think about how you set up this team and in the future. And I think Messi might have to start to accept that a little bit, that he's going to be more of a deep-lying playmaker, you know, as as his career continues to move forward. And he's still an incredible player, but in situa- in games like this, it would have, it, like I mentioned before, it would have been a huge call for Pochettino to sub off Messi, and he would never do it. But I can't help but wonder, if they did do that, and they brought an extra, extra defensive midfielder, maybe an extra defender, and they left Neymar and Mbappe up front, if PSG would have not completely collapsed. Maybe not, because... Like we've mentioned, no one really seemed to want it. They were just trying to, you know, squeak past those 90 minutes and, and get through without actually going after the game in the second half. And it comes back to bite you when when no one no one really commits to the game. And, you know, if this 
it's happened so many times before. I don't think this result is going to change anything in terms of PSG's culture and what they're about because it's happened so many times before and nothing's changed. Maybe it's just in their DNA, but you know we'll see. It's it's a very talented team, but like you said, Keenan, not that likable. Probably the only player I really like on the team is Mbappe, just because he's so much fun to watch. You know, I've loved watching Messi, but sometimes, you know, he can be a little frustrating with his lack of work rate. But, you know, I don't really know where PSG go from here. But for Real, showed so much character, so much character in that win. And, you know, they're off to the quarterfinals. They've got a strong squad. You know, you look, when you, Cruz and Modric were both in the midfield, they look a little slow. Maybe some more energy is needed. But I think this is a team that could probably go far in this tournament. Yeah, Nick, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. You know, the, the fact that, you know, they were able to, to come down from a 2-0 uh, on aggregate deficit and, and come back just shows, you know, the determination and the quality that they have. And this is going to have a huge uh, a morale boost uh, for them uh, for the rest of the season. And the match that I'm that I believe that this will help the most with is in a week and a half. Actually, yeah, around a week and a half, which is El Clasico, because you know Barcelona have been on the up, and and the fact that you know that they were able to um, you know do this comeback, this is just going to give them more motivation that they can once again beat Barcelona, and you know, and uh, and yeah, I mean, I I just think that this match will be a huge, huge morale boost uh, uh, of of the uh, of for Real Madrid, just because you know the, the fact that you know after. I forget when the first goal was scored, but up until then, you know, it, it seemed that, you know, all hope was lost. And then, you know, you score those three goals within 20 minutes, you know, and completely, you know, dominate those 20 minutes. And the fact that they were able to do that is, is just going to give them a huge, huge morale boost for the rest of the season. And, you know, before we, I guess not before, to end our coverage of this one, guys, you know, a post-game statement from Benzema released, you know, five, ten minutes ago, said the Champions League is in our DNA. We won because of our mental strength. And I think the question for me is, and, you know, we'll find out, is this team of Real Madrid is, you know, it's waning in terms of their veterans. You know, Courtois, yes, he's still a good goalie, but his days are numbered in front of him. You know, you've got Modric and Crew still in that midfield. And then, you know, you rely on Benzema going forward, Danny Carvajal in the back as well. You know, Marcelo, when he's fit, he'll be in there too. Just that, you know, this old regime of Madrid players are on their way out. That being said, you know, they're a team that is full of guys who have won the Champions League multitude of times. So I think they're a team that I'm not willing to write off no matter who they draw going into, you know, the quarterfinals because if they can beat a loaded PSG side, I think the only team that will threaten them is a team that came out and absolutely curb-stomped Red Bull Salzburg yesterday, and that is Bayern Munich. You know, finished the first leg one-to-one. Kingsley Coman obviously steals that one late to give Bayern the draw, and then it was all Bayern Munich. You got Lewandowski setting a record in the Champions League for the fastest hat trick. He does that in you know, sub-10 minutes, maybe 12 minutes if we're getting technical. Gnabry, Muller get it up to 5-0 in that get match, you know, 6-1 on aggregate. Salzburg get a consolation in the 70th, and then Muller again in the 83rd, and Sané in the 85th. Bayern seemingly reminding everyone in Europe that this is still their tournament to lose and that, you know, on paper, they are the best team 
when they line up their best 11. And also, off paper, that this team is incredibly disciplined and, you know, is phenomenal in and out of possession and can get goals from anyone on this lineup. So, Nick, you know, we talk about a team like Madrid that, you know, upsets a favorite PSG. Is Bayern still the favorite? Because, you know, we've seen anything can happen in the Champions League, but after a 1-1 draw with Salzburg to come out and put on this kind of performance, I thought Bayern was going to come out and, you know, maybe win 4-0. 7-1 is just emphatic. Yeah, I think Bayern's the fit, my favorite. Not by a lot. You know, you've still got teams like City and Liverpool have looked great this year, although Liverpool kind of stumbled a little bit against Inter, but still, you know, found their way through. But with Bayern, it's such a similar story. You know, they struggled on the road a little bit against Salzburg in that first leg. They got the late goal from Kingsley Komen to get the 1-1 draw to set it to set up a game at the Allianz. And now with with the way the Champions League, you know, is set up with two leg ties, I just really say good luck to anybody who wants to try and face Bayern Munich at home, you know, with the depth that they have. You know, the, the, the some of the players they started yesterday, you know, Musiala isn't a guy who starts a lot of games, but he goes in and in the midfield flawlessly and it's seamless. And that's that's what it's like when when a team works like Bayern Munich does with the depth that they have. Probably the most important part of that game, Brendan Aronson got an assist. So, <laughs> USA! The U.S. is back. We're back. Down Only down by five, but it's okay. He's been playing well, but that's besides the point. Um, Bayern look great. You know, they're running away with the Bundesliga, as usual. But I think in a, in a two-legged tie, when I look up and down the Champions League, who really can take them? You know, Liverpool, maybe. City, maybe. Maybe Real Madrid, but I would still probably pretty favor, heavy, heavily favored Bayern in that matchup. It's going to be interesting to watch who they draw in the quarterfinals. And, you know, there's some doubt, a little bit, after that first leg. You know, the late goal kind of got rid of some of that. But to come out like that against the Salzburg team, that's a good side. But, you know, the way they play, it's a little fearless at times. You wonder if they would have been better off just you know, bunkering down and maybe they would have only lost by three or four, but in the end it doesn't really matter. But Bayern Munich really just showed their class yesterday, and it's a fun team to watch, and I'm looking forward to seeing how they get on for the rest of the competition. Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree with that. And, and one thing to note is that this wasn't their strongest 11 because they had a, a Goretzka out, also you had Davies, who, who, who's been out for a while, and, and the fact that, you know, that they were able to still dominate in such a, you know, emphatic way i mean you, you had Lewandowski scoring three goals in 12 minutes i mean two of them were penalties but still you know a hat trick is a hat trick you know the, the fact that he was able to do that in that short period of time um and the fact that they were able to get two goals from muller one from nabry and one from sane you know the, the the fact that you know you have goal scorers all across the pitch just shows that you know that they are one of the favorites and just to echo uh, what nick said just now you know it, it's going to be interesting to see who they draw uh, because um, regardless, you know, they are one of the favorites uh, to win the competition. With both Real and Bayern through, we have half of the quarterfinals with Liverpool notching a spot despite losing 2-1 at home versus Inter Milan. And Man City, you know, they won emphatically away from home against Sporting, kind of took their foot off the gas today, ruled out a really passive lineup and still held Sporting to a nil-nil draw. Gentlemen, I we can just go. I mean, 
I can just talk about this City versus Sporting tie. I think that, you know, City, we know what quality they have, but it's the same question of Liverpool is, you know, I think City definitely has the depth in terms of, you know, like every player that they interject into their system is, you know, almost replaceable with the exception of maybe, you know, maybe Gabriel Jesus because I think Phil Foden's starting to slip up as a true number nine. But that being said, I think for a team like City, you know, them drawing sporting was what they needed to get their Champions League hopes back going because it's the trophy at City that has really eluded Pep. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see who they draw. It'd be, you know, I'm praying that they draw, you know, a team like Bayern just so that they can get, you know, really have them exposed for the fraudulent team that they are. Um, That's from a Liverpool perspective, obviously. But the more interesting match of the two that featured, you know, English footballing teams was that of Liverpool versus Inter Milan yesterday. Ends one nothing with Martinez scoring in the 61st, an absolute cracker of a goal. And then just right when Inter thinks they're back in the match, Alexis Sanchez picks up his second yellow. He gets sent off for a high challenge on Fabinho. He probably should have been sent off realistically for the one on Tiago in the first half because that was a stud to the knee that he only got a yellow for. That being said, he does see his second in the 63rd. Inter's playing with a man down. There's some chances late for Liverpool to, you know, put the icing on the cake. You think of that Salah one hitting the post. Think of Luis Diaz in the 91st, 92nd minute where Vidal throws in a miracle block. But as soon as Sanchez gets sent off, then, you know, the game changes drastically for Inter because, you know, you're obviously more susceptible when you're a man down, but it's also harder to get men forward because you're going to have to sub off, you know, someone, a holding mid or an outside wing back for someone more forward-minded to make up for, you know, a red card, especially when that red card is your one of your dual strikers. You look at this Liverpool lineup that, you know, started, I would say not their best, not their best 11. You know, obviously the front three of Mane, Yota, Yata, and Salah. Joel Mott, you know, back four. It was just the midfield that wasn't it for me. You had Curtis Jones, Fabinho, and Thiago, you know, that's a midfield that doesn't play to get with each other a lot, and it was, you know, explicitly exposed by this in this intermatch. That being said, for me, Liverpool fan, you you needed to lose one nothing, and you did, or you know you could lose one nothing, and you did. So nothing really to be taken of it. But I think for Liverpool, the question is, can you get goals from this front? strike partnership of Salah, Jota, and Mane in Europe. Because we saw it throughout the group stage, but, you know, it took them a while. It took them an introduction of Roberto Firmino in the first leg, which they won 2-0 at Inter. And with all three of them on the pitch together, they couldn't get it going. Obviously, some bad misses in there, but just to be interesting to see what Klopp does to tinker with that front line. If Diaz comes on, if Firmino gets more you know, reps, if Origi, you know, he has the depth necessary he just needs to find the right combination. Yeah, and that's something when you sign a player like Luis Diaz, it really gives you the freedom to tinker with the lineup until you can tinker with it based on form. It doesn't have to be set in stone. Whoever's hot, that's who you play. And that's really a beautiful thing for Liverpool. But in this game, Liverpool really got bailed out by that red card. You know, Martinez scores the screamer, and then it's two minutes later, Alexis is sent off. And... You know, Inter didn't even get a chance to push 
you know, push the game at all in that in that span. The Alexis red card really just killed the game. But if we're looking at the tie as a whole, you know, in that first leg, Liverpool got the two goals, but you know, Inter had chances. Inter were in the game. That was not by by no means was that a dominant you know two leg performance from Liverpool. And I think if you if you know the Alexis red card did happen, so it's kind of silly to say, well, if what if it didn't? But you know that Liverpool midfield, you know, to roll that out in a Champions League game. It's they're good. I like Curtis Jones, I like Thiago, but you know that three, that trio wasn't really working. And Liverpool could have gotten exposed, maybe against better opposition, maybe against opposition without Alexis Sanchez to get a red card. But you know Liverpool are in this competition; they've got to be considered up there. You know they've won it with this relatively with this group of players. You know in 2019, they've been there before. They know what it's like. And they've been playing so well in the Premier League too. They just won the League Cup with over Chelsea, and you know a Liverpool side fully flowing is a scary sight for most teams across Europe. But you know they really kind of labored their way through this tie, and you know it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. They're through the quarterfinals just as much as Bayern are after that seven-one, you know, thumping over Salzburg. You regroup in the quarterfinals, but I think once Liverpool, like you mentioned, Keenan find you know, the right combination of three up front and it's it's flowing, you know, I it would be hard to bet against them against anybody in this Champions League. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely agree with that, you know, especially because I'm pretty sure even Klopp said this um, in an interview a while back, like this is the strongest squad he's had because, you know, usually you have one or two injuries, but, you know, the fact that he has, you know, a lot of depth in those attacking positions, especially with the new signing of Diaz. You know, you have Jota, Firmino, Salah, Mane. Uh, you have um, Origi, Minamino. I mean, it, it it just goes on. But I mean, uh, you know, obviously uh, Liverpool did lose one nil, but there were, you know, I think Salah hit the post twice. He hit both posts, and then you know you had Vidal blocking uh, that Diaz goal at the end. Uh, but I'm pretty sure um, if I'm Reading this correctly, uh, Klopp said uh, in a post-game interview, you know, like, um, we did lose the game, but we lost the right game. Because, you know, obviously they did lose, but they're still through. So, uh, you know, hopefully he, he believes that this can be used as a reset point uh, to push the team further. And, you know, obviously um, with that, if they can find the right trio, um, then, you know, there's no stopping them, essentially. Because, you know, on their day, Salah, you know, that front three can absolutely shred any team. Yeah, and I think, you know, as we narrow down the Champions League from 16 to 8 and then ultimately 8 to 4 and then to 2, you know, it really comes down to, you know, what manager is going to shine and especially, you know, all these teams are loaded with talent and which one is going to be able to put the best combination of the talent on the field in order to secure, you know, wins, draws, losses at crucial times in order for their team to advance. With this match week being done, we've got four in. They're Bayern, Liverpool, City, and Madrid. Next week, we've got United versus Atletico. They're tied at 1-1. Ajax versus Benfica. They're tied at 2s. Juve versus Villarreal. That's 1-1. And then the only match with a leading team is Chelsea is leading 2-0 on Lille. Speaking of Chelsea, though, we weren't recording last week. We do have some big news coming out of Chelsea Abramovich, their owner. The crooked Roman Abramovich, the Soviet man who 
found his fortune through self-admitting corrupt means, is stepping down from owning the club. He bought Chelsea in 2003. Since then, he's taken them from a poverty franchise into a global tyrant in terms of world football. Two Champions Leagues trophies won to go along with 17 other major trophies. You know, him and his Russian money has pretty much fueled Chelsea into becoming relevant in soccer once again. Um, you know, he's pretty much sunk $2 billion of his own personal fortune into this club to, in order to make sure that they were able to sign, you know, premier players back when he took over. You think of Michael Bollock, you think of, you know, the days of Eto, the days of Drugba, you know, Frank Lampard coming up in that club, staying in that club. All cost him a pretty penny, and you know what? It was worth it for his investment because Chelsea, you know, obviously moving up in the scheme of world football. But now the question comes to what happens when Abramovich leaves Chelsea. You know, we've seen it with Newcastle being bought by the Saudi group that there's money out there and that running a Premier League team and owning a Premier League team costs a bag. And, you know, it's not for the not for the weak of heart. I think if we are to analyze Abramovich's role at Chelsea, yes, there's questions amid the global crisis of Ukraine about his relationship to Putin. I don't know if that influences him stepping down, but he's moving on from the Premier League. And I just wonder who's going to take Chelsea and what direction Chelsea's going to go forward. Just because so much of the money sunk into Chelsea was from Abramovich. Yes, that's his, you know, his job as an owner, but you know, so much of the revenue that they receive is from his own you know, Russian companies that when he moves on, I doubt that money's going to stay in Chelsea and unless Chelsea, you know, bags a Saudi group, an Emirates group or, you know, another like another Russian phony tech company executive, how will Chelsea proceed going forward? You know, as a Chelsea fan, I am a little bit worried because regardless of what you think about the ethics of Roman Abramovich, he spends money. He spends a lot of it. So when that's gone and you look at some of the names that have been you know, thrown in the mix to buy him, there's a lot of you know, NFL owners, Woody Johnson from the Jets, which I, I just, no words, no words. If, the New York Jets are such a poorly run franchise. If just... An inch of that came to Chelsea. That would that would really upset me. Also, there's been some talk of you know the Cubs fan, the Ricketts family who own the Cubs. Um, Disgusting. Even... <laughs> Being a White Sox fan, if the Ricketts family owns Chelsea, you can expect you know one trophy and then mediocrity and an unwillingness to sell players. But that the, are they'll not never good. shut up about that trophy, and it will. <laughs> it's true. And then there's also been talk of a Dodgers owner, Dodgers minority owner, maybe coming in and buying. It's definitely there's a lot of interest because it's profitable. Chelsea, you know, Abramovich has cemented them as one of the top four clubs in in England, one of the biggest clubs in Europe. You'd like to think at this point there's enough profitability there for Abramovich's influence at this point to not be so great in terms of finances. You know, like you mentioned, Keenan. To back, go back to 2003, 2004, when they're buying players, that's literally just Abramovich pumping in money for them to buy those players. You'd like to hope by now that with the Champions League money they get, the Premier League money they get, you know, shirt sales, they're, they're a big, you know, international commodity now, that they're at least profitable enough that even without Abramovich's pop, pocketbook, um, Chelsea, you know, are, are in good enough of a spot 
to survive, not just survive, but still continue to thrive. But it's definitely interesting to look at because whoever the new owner is, unless it's like you mentioned, Keenan, like it's some Saudi oil baron or something, it's going to be a step down and they're going to have less money than Bramovich. And, you know, even whatever you think of Roman, you know, it's clear that he very deeply cares about Chelsea a lot. And, you know, you just hope that whoever the next owner is, you know, shares that same passion. And it's not just an American owner who's in it, you know, for, for a quick buck. Like, you know, we've seen at Manchester United. And we just you just got to hope that whoever owns Chelsea really has a passion for soccer and really wants to see the club grow. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, uh, you know, uh, under Abramovich, they, they won every single trophy possible. You know, two, uh, two Champions League, two Europa Leagues. Uh, Club World Cup, Super Cup, you know, they've won everything. And, um, you know, his, this era, I'm going to call it, you know, the the Abramovich era has definitely, you know, made them into one of the biggest clubs in the world. So obviously they're going to miss that. Um, And, you know, obviously, um, you know, as Nick said, you know, Abramovich clearly cares about the club. And what I'm afraid that might happen uh, for Chelsea is that, you know, just like you said, we're going to have another United situation where, you know, the owners come in and, you know, they just care about making money and then the club will, you know, slip away. And, you know, I I don't think that, I don't think that's good for anyone. You know, it's not good for the club themselves. It's not good for the fans. It's it's not good uh, for the Premier League because right now the Premier League is by far the best league in the world. Yeah, I said it, Keenan, deal with it. And, you know, it's because they have great teams. And if those teams start to decline, then, you know, no one's going to care about about the league anymore. So it is sad uh, to see it go. And hopefully, um, you know, Chelsea don't, you know, fall off a cliff uh, in the coming time. Yeah, and I think despite your disrespect to the MLS, Michael, I think the most important part about Chelsea is that, you know, we've seen that, especially in the past, what, five, ten years, that the parity growing in the Premier League is exceptionally high in the sense that anyone on that table can come and get you. But especially now that we're considering finances, you know, you think of Newcastle getting bought by Saudi oil money. You know, they go out and splash sign Trippier you know that this summer they're just going to be throwing cash at every person that is going to be willing to take it. So I think that for Chelsea, you know, Nick, you mentioned it, unless it's Saudi or unless it's, you know, an oil guy, it's probably going to be a step down in terms of finances supplied to the club just because Abramovich was so incredibly wealthy. But listen, if you're Chelsea, Chelsea supporter, that's a conversation for another day because you're dropping points like crazy in the Premier League. Got a comfortable 2-0 lead over Lille, but we saw today what a 2-0 lead can happen in a matter of minutes if you don't shore everything up. Boys, before we conclude this episode, anything that you think we should be looking forward to in the next couple of weeks? Obviously, we know, you know some title races are getting close, especially when you think of that Liverpool versus City. Michael, you're raising your hand. Have at it, kid. Yeah, I mean, first, obviously, you know, um, you know, Chelsea need to be aware of a little. But one thing you didn't mention uh, to the dropping points is that they also like to bottle finals, you know, especially with the whole goalkeeper situation. But, you know, I'm not going to get into that because that was a while back. But uh, one upcoming match 
that you know obviously is a is a huge one actually well, two i guess uh first one is obviously atletico against uh united you know it's a 1-1 aggregate it's at old trafford uh and especially after what happened over the weekend in the manchester derby um united are going to want to come out strong you know especially cuz you know this is the only trophy that they have a a chance of winning, I'm not saying that they're going to, but that but they have a chance, and, and this is huge because, uh, especially you know, with that firepower, and especially what's with you know what's going on, you know, they're trying to get a new manager and all that. Um, but the second match that I'm excited for is, uh, and I mentioned this before, uh, is El Clasico. It's at the Bernabeu, you know, Real Madrid, Barcelona. Even though you know those are two of the greatest teams in the world, uh, I'm actually going to be there, so uh, I am very. Very excited to see what happens, you know, especially with Barcelona's new signings. You know, they've been on the up, and you know, af- especially after this performance, I just can't wait to go there. One thing I'll say real quick: March is March Madness. We know that, but March is also World Cup qualifying. End of the month, USA Mexico, big deal. Also got the European playoffs. Might get a Portugal Italy matchup. Good international games coming, and the World Cup draw is less than a month away. World Cup draw is April first, so. It's is sneaking it really? up on us. It is sneaking up on us. Yes, they end the March window, draws right at the beginning of April. So it's almost World Cup season, not really because it's not until November, but we're going to get a fuller picture soon. And, you know, mm-hmm. on that point, Nick, that was the one thing I was going to highlight. Obviously, we know on the club level, you know, on the Champions League level, everything happening. But for uh, I'm not going to go on to a rant because the, we're running low on time, but the U.S. has everything to prove at the end of March, and I don't know if we're going to record next week. Just I'm so be- nervous. Just because it's spring break, but I can guarantee you that the week, the next time we record leading up to those matches, it might just be me and Nick Guzman, and we'll maybe get James Burley in the mix. Michael said he tuned out because he went overseas. That's a load of junk. So un-American. That's a load of junk. I, look, I am sorry that I'm going, like, uh, I'm not going to lie. Tomorrow I have a class until 5. And then I'm taking a 5:30 to go to Southampton to see Southampton. Yeah. Okay. Like, so right enough of enough of the Premier League garbage because we're talking about the red, the white, and the blue. They've Stars got, and stripes. They've got everything to prove in this March window. I'm not ready for it. My blood pressure is not ready for it. My sleep Don't schedule forget, is not ready no for Weston it. No McKinney. Don't forget no, no Weston McKinney. It's He's okay. And probably no Zach Steffen or Matt Turner, but even Horvath's got it. Give it to Gaga, Gabriel Solovina. I want to keep her trained with him. That's gonna do it for this week. Episode of FUVFC. Always a fun time when we get these two characters on the show with me. For Nick Guzman, Michael Hernandez, I'm Keenan Troy telling you listen, basketball is essential in March. But know what's more essential? Keeping up to date with the title races, breaking down every Champions League knockout match, and most importantly, most important to me, following this U.S. men's national team that lives rent-free in my head. Greg Burhalter, please. I don't know the next time I'll be on the show is, but if you listen to this, please, please don't ruin the month of March for me. My birthday was the first day of March. I'd love to end March on a good note. Everything in between can be irrelevant. Take care, guys.